I uh, decided to go ahead and wear green today because uh, Steve isn't here to represent the Michigan State Spartans and their victory yesterday, but I thought that I, I would give them a little support. So green today, um, certainly not green tomorrow when my Lions play the Packers, but green today, <laughs> that's fine. So we're continuing through the book of Daniel uh, this morning in our counterculture series. We're looking at stories from the first uh, six chapters that give us insight into how we can live for God in a culture that isn't. Uh, If you remember from last week, Daniel and his friends find themselves uh, in exile in a foreign country in Babylon, in the capital city of an empire that's very different uh, from the the nation of Israel that they uh, grew up in, or Judah more specifically. Uh, And so the, the, the stories that Uh, are shared about Daniel and his friends, give us lots of insight into how we can live for God uh, in a culture around us when we're surrounded by people who who aren't, when that's just not their first priority. And today we're going to look at two stories. Uh, One is in Daniel chapter 2, the other is in Daniel chapter 4, and they have one thing in common. Both of these stories are about dreams. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had two different dreams. I'm sure he had more than that, but the Bible records two different dreams. uh, And these dreams uh, are particularly uh, bad for him. They wake him up in a cold sweat, really more like nightmares uh, than dreams, the way they play out and how how concerned the king becomes over them. Um, And as I was thinking through this this week, I remembered that as a kid, I also had two dreams that were kind of like that. These recurring nightmares that would wake me up in a cold sweat Um, And so some context to understand this, um, when I was a kid, okay, if I'm honest, today, for my whole life, uh, I've had two irrational fears. Um, I have more fears than that, but these two are particularly irrational and I can't shake them, uh, clowns and needles. Those are my two irrational fears, the two things that I go running to the hills at the mention of of either one of them. Uh, And I had two, wouldn't you know, that I had two recurring nightmares as a kid. One uh, was about needles and the other about clowns. So you see this picture. Uh, I feel like my my fear of clowns, I came by it honestly. This was hanging in my crib uh, as a baby. Um, And my brother and my sister, we all got the joy of having the creepiest thing ever hanging in our crib, and so uh, I came out with a, a fear of clowns, and so uh, my, my clown dream was pretty straightforward, uh, psychologically speaking. Uh, in this nightmare, a clown killed my dad, um, and usually it went that I was at a circus, and I was sitting in the crowd with my dad next to me, and the clowns would come out and do their clowny thing, and one clown uh, would come over, and he would, he would shoot like, with his flower, but he shot bullets from his flower, um, and, and it, my dad would get killed in this nightmare, and I had this nightmare over and over and over again as a kid, and so you know, the clown in my crib, I think, set me up uh, for this recurring nightmare, uh, and I was afraid of clowns. I thought they were very violent. <laughs> because of my nightmare. So I come by the fear honestly. Uh, I I acknowledge that it's a little irrational um, that that clowns are supposed to bring joy and happiness, but um, not to me. And uh, and the other one is actually a little weirder. Um, I've always hated needles too. Uh, In fact, until pretty recently, I had a pretty long track record of passing out anytime I I gave blood or got a vaccine. Um, Anytime a needle uh, came near me, I was, I was down. I would warn each new doctor or nurse. Uh, I would warn them and they would, you know, put my legs up and they would like give me orange juice and it didn't really work. I would just pass out uh, because I'm, I'm weak. I'm a wimp. Um, and uh, 
even, even in, in college, I think I've told this story before, when I was in college, a senior in college, in my biology class, um, we, were, we were studying uh, blood under a microscope and we did the little like finger prick thing um, and I passed out from that too. So, uh, and I actually, so I passed out at the lab table and I was in the front row and I came to with my, my biology professor was up on the lab table slapping me in the face. And that's how, that's how I came to when I passed out, but that wasn't in my notes. That's for free. Um, so yeah, needles, my nightmare. Uh, and, and, and the nightmare always started with me running away from a group of doctors and nurses in white lab coats who were chasing me around with needles. Um, and so, you know, that makes sense. It's pretty standard nightmare stuff. Uh, but it wasn't in a hospital. It was in like a warehouse. Um, and it was a really big warehouse. And I didn't understand why I was being chased around with needles in a warehouse. And like some big dumb idiot, I always ran up the stairs to get away. Um, and I always ended up trapped on the roof of the warehouse. And again, it's a pretty standard nightmare um, <laughs> until uh, Alvin and the chipmunk showed up to rescue me. <laughs> like, no joke, every single time it was Alvin, Simon, and Theodore, you know, to the rescue. They come barging through the doctors and the nurses, and they tell me that I can fly, that I can fly away from all the bad needles, but I can only fly if I go feet first. Um, I told you, super weird, right? And so I would jump off the roof and fly through the air upside down by my feet. My feet had the ability to fly, I guess. Um, and that's how I escaped uh, all the medical professionals chasing me uh, with their vaccines. <laughs> and King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams weren't about needles or clowns. They, I, as far as I can tell, they had nothing to do with that. But they were just as strange. Um, and I imagine they scared him just as much. And so he turned to his advisors and enchanters and, and his astrologers to explain these dreams that he was having. And occasionally in the Bible, we see that God speaks to his people through dreams and visions. Uh, and as it turns out, the, both of the king's dreams are messages from God. Um, God gives the king these messages in dreams. Uh, and we read about the first dream in Daniel chapter 2. So word of warning, there's going to be an, a lot of scripture reading today. I warned our, our sound techs when they were setting up the slides um, that I'm sorry there's so many slides. Here we go. Daniel chapter 2, starting at the very beginning. Uh, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Reasonable. And the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. <laughs> Whoa, that escalated quickly. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. You can imagine what these, what these guys are thinking, right? So once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain more time because you realize that this is what I've firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. 
No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So through no fault of their own, just minding their own business, all of a sudden Daniel and his friends are in danger. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that troubles him, and so he calls in the professionals, uh, the, the ancient equivalent of the psychologists, the the the, the people whose job it was to interpret dreams. Um, They they were the political consultants and the spiritual advisors of of the king. They served as the king's connection to the gods of Babylon. These were the people who supposedly were in contact with the the spiritual world, with the gods uh, of Babylon. And Babylonian religion encouraged looking for secrets about the future in dreams and, and events. Uh, Like, I don't know if you're a fan of the Harry Potter series, but like when Harry Potter is in the divination class up in the tower and he has to like read the tea leaves, that's kind of what these guys did for for the king. They would read the signs and try to like predict the future, the things that are going to come and happen. And God uses this aspect of Babylonian culture to speak to the king in a dream. Um, God uh, didn't use some of the, the other kind of wilder, lesser uh, endorse, you know, biblically endorsed methods to speak to the king, but a dream is okay. God will speak to the king in a dream. But there's just this one problem. The king doesn't trust his own astrologers. And so he comes up with this test. Not only do they have to tell him what his dream means, which they are accustomed to doing, they also have to tell him what he dreamed, which is pretty ridiculous of him to ask. He, he realizes how easy it is to make up a convincing interpretation and, and, and who is he to say that they're wrong because they're the ones that supposedly are connected to the gods. And so he wants to make sure that he can trust them to get it right. If they tell him what he dreamed, then he'll know that they know what they're doing, that they really are connected to the gods because they can tell him the dream and then he'll trust their interpretation. And so he probably figured since they claim to communicate with the gods, it's, it's not that big a deal to ask them to do this. The gods can do this in the king's mind. And the advisors start to panic, and then they tell the king that no one can reveal it except the gods, and they do not live among humans. And so the king has no use for for wise men who can't come through for him when he needs them, and so he orders them all put to death, including Daniel and his friends. And, And this story, this situation sets up two rivalries, On the surface of it, the the rivals in the story are Daniel and the king's advisors. As the story unfolds, we we see that, you know, we we see the tension of, is Daniel able to do what the king's advisors say that no one can do? So there's this rivalry that we see, but, but the deeper rivalry is between Daniel's God and the idols that the king and his advisors worshiped. The advisors themselves set that rivalry up when they say that that nobody can do this except the gods, and the gods aren't around. The gods aren't interested in in this kind of thing. The the advisors are diviners, not prophets. They deal with reading signs and omens to interpret dreams, but they don't receive visions and dreams themselves. Uh, The gods don't 
communicate things to them. They just interpret things that the gods have communicated to others. That's what they're used to doing. And Daniel's trained to do this too. Remember last week, uh, Daniel and his friends were part of this uh, three-year education program in Babylon to be trained up in all the, the, the ways of uh, the Babylonian culture so that they can serve in this role as well. They can be the advisors to the king. So Daniel also knows how to do this, uh, but Daniel can go further than the other advisors. And it's not because he's better at it than they are. It's not because he studied harder. He might have, but that's not why he can go further. Daniel can go further because he serves a God who can reveal this dream to him as opposed to the gods that the other advisors served. The the king's advisors panic when they hear the king's demand, understandably, right? But Daniel calmly asks the king for some time uh, so that he can come back to him and interpret the dream. And the king says yes, the king gives him some time, and he uses that time to meet with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and pray. Uh, The king's advisors panic because they believe that no one can reveal the dream except the gods, and the gods don't live among us, but Daniel and his friends pray because they also believe that no one can reveal the dream except God, except they know that God does live among us that we do have access to God. And so when the king's advisors panic, Daniel and his friends pray. And their trust in God pays off. In verse 19, it says, during the night, while they were praying, right, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So God does show Daniel what it was that the king dreamed and, and what it meant. And before Daniel rushes off to save his life by telling the king his dream, Daniel praise again. This time he prays to thank God for being powerful and wise, for for coming through when they needed him. Uh, And then he does the impossible thing that the king demanded. Uh, He tells the king what he dreamed uh, and he tells the king what it means. So we're going to pick back up in the same chapter, uh, but down in verse 26. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's so cool, isn't it? He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you 
are the king of kings, lowercase. You notice that in the Bible? You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The king must have liked the news that he was the gold head. At the top of history and the most precious of all the metals. And yes, in, in this dream, the, the head is eventually replaced uh, and, and it passes away. But for now, the king's position is secure. Uh, you know, you, you can see how Nebuchadnezzar would be afraid of a dream like this that makes it look like uh, something bad is about to happen to his kingdom, but Daniel shares with him that that's lo long in the future, um, that, that, that those are future events, and, and so the king was probably reassured by, by that part of it. The other medals, uh, we're told, they stand for other nations, other empires, uh, instead of individual kings like the gold head, uh, and the identity of those nations uh, has been debated over the years. Uh, the Bible doesn't uh, just identifies them by different types of metals. It doesn't come out and say what they were. Um, the Roman view uh, is the most popular today. The idea that, uh, that gold, the gold head is Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we're told that specifically. But then the silver torso is Persia, the next empire that, that raises up in history. Uh, the bronze midsection is Greece, uh, the next big empire that, that comes historically. Uh, and then the iron and clay, the legs and the feet are, are the Roman Empire. Um, and so this is a, a prediction of the rise and fall of the coming human empires. Um, and and whether, whether those are the, the, the right empires that God intended or whether it, uh, it, was, it was some other empires um, honestly isn't the point. It, it's easy for us to, to get lost trying to figure out the meaning of every symbol that's in this dream because it is highly symbolic. Um, but that, that misses the point because the, the dream isn't meant to be specific about how empires will rise and fall throughout history. The, the dream is meant to tell us, the vision is meant to communicate a more general truth, that empires will rise and fall throughout history. But God is in control of history. The, the empire that God builds, the kingdom that God builds, the rock that gets cut out but not by human hands, doesn't pass away, doesn't fall, doesn't fade. It actually just continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, it crushes human empires, but it endures. It's eternal. 
And, and only God's wisdom can reveal mysteries of life like the king's dream and its meaning. The, the content of the dream isn't the most important thing. The important thing is that it's only Daniel's God who knows what the future holds. The other gods of Babylon couldn't do this. The advisors said so themselves, or at least that they wouldn't. But the advisors were not able to do this. Daniel's God did. And when the statue made by human hands and empires faces the, the rock of God's kingdom, there's no contest. The, the rock uh, obliterates human empires. The, the kingdoms of the world are temporary. There's only one kingdom that's eternal. There's only one that lasts forever. And so through the king's first dream, God shows decisively that he is in control of history and that he intends to establish his kingdom in history. And then two chapters later, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. And this one scared him too. And after all the wise men in Babylon failed to figure it out again, Daniel showed up. And now, quite a bit of time passed between chapter 2 and 4. Uh, Daniel was probably 17 or 18 years old in chapter 2. Uh, it starts with saying, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So Daniel had just really finished uh, his training or was right at the end of his training. So he was young. Uh, he, was, he was still a teenager in this first dream. The second dream, he was probably closer to 50 years old. So he's been serving the king for over 30 years uh, as, as one of his chief advisors in this role. And we don't know why the king didn't turn to him immediately for the second dream. Um, it was 30 years later, so maybe he, he didn't think of it right off the bat. Um, but eventually Daniel shows up to interpret the dream for the king. And this time the king tells him the dream. Uh, he doesn't test him uh, like he did last time. And he tells him the dream uh, about a huge tree that gets cut down and it becomes a wild animal wandering the earth for seven years. And Daniel hesitates to give the king the meaning. He, he knows what it means. God shows him what it means. Uh, Daniel hesitates because it's, it's not good news. And his explanation to the king starts in chapter 4, uh, and it starts all the way down in verse 20. So that's where we're going to pick up. Daniel chapter 4, verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are the tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven, and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, bound with iron and bronze, in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. That's pretty, those are pretty bold words from Daniel to the king. 
It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the only chapter in the Bible that is written by a non-believer, by a pagan. This is, this is a letter that the king himself is writing to his people to narrate the experience that he had with this dream and what happened afterwards. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's pretty amazing that he does. The tree stands for, for the king, great and strong, providing food and shelter and protection for his people. Uh, and an angel calls for this great tree to be cut down and destroyed, uh, leaving just a stump behind with, with roots still in the ground. And then the stump lives with the wild animals for seven years, so, so somehow it kind of morphs in the vision into, from one metaphor to another and lives with the animals. Basically, the dream is warning the king that he's going to lose his sanity and be driven away from people uh, to live in the wild like an animal does uh, for seven years. Daniel says seven times. That's a pretty typical uh, reference to, to years, uh, periods of time, seven full rotations of seasons, if you want. Uh, seven times until he finally recognizes, finally acknowledges God's power, uh, who God is. And so the second dream is a warning to the king about pride. When we enjoy success, we start to think that we caused it, that, that we deserve it, that God owes it to us. Maybe that he owes us even more. Throughout the Bible, though, God humbles the proud. In the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning, after Adam and Eve chose themselves over God uh, by eating the fruit that, that God commanded them not to eat, they lost their place in paradise. The Garden of Eden was closed to them, uh, and their life became hard work and, and, and toil. And when humanity rebelled against God and, and built a tower uh, that, that re reached to the heavens, uh, or to try to reach the heavens, God intervened. 
and he scattered them over the face of the entire earth. When Saul, in the New Testament, when Saul set out to kill Christians in Damascus, God made him blind. God took away his sight until he could finally see the truth of who Jesus is. Because pride looks at God and thinks, I can do better. I can do better than that. That's fine. That's all well and good. But I like my way. And if we're not careful, God has to step in and intervene to teach humility. And that's what happened to the king. God's, advi- or God's advice, Daniel's advice, I guess God's advice, but through Daniel, uh, is for the king to renounce his sins. Uh, don't stop sinning and instead do what's right. Uh, give up your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Uh, change your ways. And if you do that, if you avoid sin and you're kind to others, uh, you might be able to escape the temptation to think of yourself as a god. Um, Daniel is giving the king an opportunity uh, so, so that what God uh, predicted is going to happen didn't have to happen uh, if the king would, would repent and change his ways. And, and God gives him time. Uh, the, you know, it, the, the story doesn't really uh, give much time. It it's, you know, moves right on, but it does tell us that 12 months passed, that this king had a year uh, before God actually stepped in and followed through uh, with the vision. Uh, he was walking around on, on the roof of his palace a year later, admiring his empire uh, that we know included two of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, the Babylonian empire was pretty admirable, pretty, you know, something, to, something to look at. And, and the king honestly played a big part in it, obviously, as the king of this empire. And so he's looking around, and then verse 30 he says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Oops. (laughs) Instead of embracing humility, Nebuchadnezzar chose pride. And the dream from a year ago is fulfilled before he's even done talking. It says immediately... What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. It's pretty grotesque. Just in time for Halloween, right? He lost his mind. God stripped everything away from him. His power, his position, his wealth, his palace, even his sanity, even his ability to to reason and, and think like a human being. And insanity drives him to live in the wild where he neglects his hygiene and he ends up looking like some kind of weird animal-like creature. I read a quote this week that said, a man who thinks he's a god has to become an animal to learn that he's only human. I liked that a lot. This story is similar to Beauty and the Beast. You remember the classic Disney story? The, 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 I guess it wasn't a Disney story, but Disney told it, right? Uh, where, where this prince is cursed to be a beast until he can learn how to love and, and be loved in return and receive love. Um, this is, it reminds me of that a little bit, right? The king is cursed to live like an animal until he can learn to acknowledge who really has the power in his life. And, and at the end of seven years... Uh, He narrates that I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. The king finally understands. Finally understands his place in the world. 
I mean, we jumped over Daniel chapter 3. We're going to look at chapter 3 next week, uh, but that's a pretty famous story about the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. And, and we jumped over that chapter where the king still hadn't learned his lesson after the first dream. Uh, but, but after the second dream, we finally see that maybe there's some hope. Maybe because of what God did, the extreme measures that God took, maybe there's hope for the king. Uh, that he may be powerful among people, but he's far from the most powerful in the universe. And whatever power he does have is a gift that, that God has given him, along with his wealth, his position, and even his own sanity and ability to reason and think straight. Those are all gifts from God. And so once he acknowledges God's ultimate sovereignty, that God is the one that's in control in his life, everything is returned to him. It, that's kind of like Job, isn't it? Uh, and not that Job sinned like the king did, but, but at the end of the book of Job, it's like this, right? That everything is returned uh, one, once things are set right. And the king looks to heaven, he cries for help to a power that's greater than his own, that's when he finally gets it. That there is a power that is greater than his own. That's what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility is when I understand who I am in comparison to God. And I acknowledge that I need him for everything. That I can't do anything on my own. That I, and we're bad at this. Because we, 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 we butt up against that. That we want to be able to do everything on our own. But humility says, no, acknowledge God that you literally can't do anything in this Christian life without him. We need him. And the king learned that lesson. Both of the king's dreams teach that God is in control. The first dream shows a God that's in control over history, over this broad, overarching rise and fall of human empires, a God who offers an eternal kingdom that will destroy and outlast all human empires. And the second dream shows a God who's in control in each of our lives. A God who calls us to set aside our pride and our faith in ourselves and to put our faith and trust in him. God humbles the proud and then he invites the humble into his eternal kingdom. And even the most powerful world leader at the time, the king of Babylon, is no match for God. And last week we saw that the king only wins victories when God gives them. And today we see that he doesn't even understand his own dreams unless God sends someone to explain their meaning to him. That's that sets it up on purpose. That how can this king be the most powerful person? He can't even understand his own dreams. He can't win battles unless God lets it happen. That's because God is the powerful one. God is in control. So all of that, two whole chapters of Daniel with these weird trippy dreams, for what? What does it mean for us today? We live thousands of years after these things happened. How do the dreams of this pagan king from so long ago have anything to say to us now? Well, I think the message that God is in control is just as relevant today as it was then. We all face enemies that seem to be a lot more powerful than we are, right? The, the way that Daniel uh, was compared to the king. You know, the king held Daniel's life in his hands. And, and the kingdom of Babylon uh, was, was, you know, over him. He didn't have a lot of say in, in what they were asking him to do. We all face enemies that seem to be way more powerful than us. Whether it's a crippling disability, uh, like Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks about in the New Testament, 
uh, or a mental illness like clinical depression or an anxiety disorder, uh, a terminal disease, uh, an abusive relationship, a negative stereotype that you can't shake, uh, or, or financial hardship that you can't climb out of. We all face things that seem to be overwhelming and more powerful than we can handle. Uh, And even though we find ourselves in situations where we have little or no power, God still does. And, And these visions, these dreams teach us that, that God is in control. God has the power even when we don't. And if we can, and if God can humble the greatest human king on earth at the time, God can humble cancer. I've seen it happen. God can do it. Because God's in control of the big things in history like the rise and fall of empires, but he's also in control of the small things in our lives, like dealing with these nagging sins that we can't seem to get rid of, like like Nebuchadnezzar with his pride. At the end of chapter 4, after the king turns to God for help and he regains his sanity, uh, his people seek him out to, to restore his throne. He was, he was a, a, a pretty good king, honestly, to his people in these ways. He just needed to learn his place with God. It may not seem like it on the surface, but what happened to the king ultimately served to give him a second chance with God. God could have killed him. God, God could have caused his kingdom to fall and collapse. But instead, God showed him mercy and love by, by giving him a chance to repent. It was pretty severe. I mean, for sure it was severe. Seven years is a long time, right? But, in the, but it worked. The, the way we read it, right? The king learned the value of humility and relying on God before it was too late for him. And, and even though his empire would eventually fall, he knew that from the first dream, now he has the opportunity to be part of the eternal kingdom that God will bring. And so these dreams teach us that God is always in control, both in history and in our lives. They teach us that God calls us to turn away from pride in ourselves and our accomplishments and recognize our need for him. And they teach us that true wisdom comes from being in a relationship with this God. God is the revealer of mysteries. I love that title for him that that we read in these chapters. And no matter how much the wise advisors to the king, no matter how much they study, they can't gain enough wisdom from their studies to interpret the dreams. And Daniel's wisdom didn't come from books about dream interpretations or about studying methods of divination. It came through a conversation with God in prayer. So if you want the wisdom to live well in a chaotic and confusing culture, the message of the Bible is clear. Build your relationship with Jesus. Be in conversation with him through prayer and through reading the the, the word that he has already given us uh, in the Bible. Be in conversation with him to gain the wisdom that you'll need because only he has the wisdom that we need. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Wisdom like Daniel's only comes from knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God. When Daniel's faced with a life and death situation, he doesn't panic. He prays. Prayer and humility and learning to rely on the God who is always in control, that is how we live for God in a culture that doesn't. Let's pray. Father, 
it, it's hard. It's hard to, to lean on you, even, even though we know these stories, even though we, we've read them in the Bible, even though we've experienced things our, ourselves in our lives that, that show us that you are reliable, that you are trustworthy, that you come through. It's still hard. It's still difficult to remember to lean into you because it's so much easier to try to, to, try to fix things myself, to try to go it on my own. Pride is, is so difficult. But Father, I just pray this morning that, that, that as we enter into a time of communion, as we, uh, as we consider uh, what your son uh, has done for us, what you've done for us uh, by sending Jesus to, to die on a cross for our sins in our place, um, maybe we just consider the humility that you yourself showed. That, that, that Jesus gave up his rightful position to, to become like one of us and, and to take our penalty on himself when he didn't deserve it. Uh, Father, uh, may we seek to imitate that kind of humility as we acknowledge that you are in control in our lives and throughout history in our world. Uh, may we seek uh, to, to turn our backs on pride and embrace humility and your kingdom. That's in Jesus' name. In that same chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross really does seem like a foolish thing for God to do. A God who suffers and seems weak, a Messiah who's executed like a criminal, a path to God that we can't earn by being good enough. And the cross is kind of like the king's dreams. We only understand what God is doing when we give up our pride and just trust him. And that's why we take communion together every week. It's a reminder of who Jesus is and who we are in him, a reminder of how trustworthy he is. So when the trays are passed, uh, please go ahead and take a set of cups and hold on to them until we can take communion together. His body given for us, his blood poured out for our sins. Amen. Well, God is in control throughout history and in our lives. And he is building an eternal kingdom and he invites all of us to give up our pride and rely on him for the wisdom that we need to, to live for God in a world that isn't. Why don't we sing one more song this morning together as we're dismissed.